Welcome to episode 48 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau42.com. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This time around, we're looking at Soft Light, which is the 23rd episode of season 2 of the X-Files. Original air date was May 5th, 1995, and the IMDb user rating was 7.9 out of 10 at the time I collated these. This is the series' seventh visit to the state of Virginia, putting it only behind Maryland in popularity. This episode centers on a character played by Tony Shalhoub, and at this point in his career, it's after Wings, but before Monk and Galaxy Quest, and he plays Dr. Chester Ray Banton, a particle physicist researching dark matter. Now, Shalhoub was unfamiliar with the show, but agreed to do it after reading the script and seeing elements of the Twilight Zone in it, which is a show he had a lot of respect for, and quite deservedly so. In this episode, he undergoes an experiment, or really has an accident in a particle accelerator, dealing with his research into dark matter, which changes the nature of his shadow, so that anyone who steps on his shadow dies, and is, as he puts it, sucked in like a black hole, turned into a pile of ash, and is killed on the spot. We don't know this at first. The first time we see Dr. Banton, he's in a hotel hallway, pounding on a door, asking someone to let him in, they need to talk, and his shadow slips under the door into the hotel room behind him, and kills the person in that room. Banton unscrews the light and leaves. One of Scully's former students brings Mulder and Scully in on the case, asking for help so she can really make her mark in her first time out as a detective, and they end up eventually tracking down Dr. Banton, realize that he's not deliberately killing people, he has had this accident that's changed the nature of his shadow. He spends a lot of his time in a train station under soft light, so he's not really casting shadows anywhere, or no discernible shadows, and he keeps going back to his former research colleagues to try and solve the problem only they all end up accidentally dying. He's also very paranoid that the government is going to come and give him a brain suck to learn everything that he's learned. So this kind of works as a monster of the week. There's a little bit of continuity as they make reference to Squeeze back from season one, things like that. I have a harder time enjoying this than a lot of people, and that's largely due to my particle physics research background. Now, dark matter is an area of active research. It was first proposed in 1932. We know that the expansion of the universe doesn't correspond to our understanding of the physical laws that represent this expansion. So we look at essentially how galaxies and planets and stars and solar systems are behaving. We look at how well we understand how they behave, and that understanding holds up extremely well in our Earth-based laboratories and in just studies of the solar system and so forth. But if these laws hold true over great distances exactly as they are, then there's got to be material out there that we can't see. We can't detect it, and that's why it's referred to as dark matter. There's similarly dark energy, because we can tell, well, these behaviors would work with matter, these behaviors would work with energy. Now, some of this has been identified, so we have verified that neutrinos have mass, which right then and there puts a huge amount of material out there that's very difficult to detect, but which does have an impact on this. So once we measure the mass of neutrinos more precisely, we'll be able to fill out a certain percentage of this dark matter. Now, part of the issue I have with this episode is that they list a series of things that they are considering dark matter. Quantum particles, neutrinos, gluons, mesons, quarks. But in the episode, they say, well, they're purely theoretical. Nobody really knows for sure if they exist. And they do. They've all been detected. Their existence has all been confirmed. And that took place for all of them before the episode was made. The Pi Mason was the first Mason that was detected and confirmed. It was theoretically proposed in the 1930s. It was detected and observed in 1947. Now, antineutrinos were detected in 1956. The corresponding matter particles of neutrinos weren't detected until the 1970s. 
Quarks were first detected in 1968. Gluons were first detected in 1978. So there's no question that these were known to exist by the time we get to 1995. Now, each of the terms they throw out is actually the name for a family of similar particles. And there's new entries in those families that are still being discovered today, for the most part. Quarks and gluons, we know we've got a complete set. Neutrinos, we've got a complete set. It's mesons are a general class of particles that can be built in different ways. Those we're still discovering new examples of 20 years later. Now, I've got other scientific nitpicks here. For one thing, this whole thing comes out of the fact that an adjustment needed to be made in the target room in a particle accelerator, and there wasn't time to stop this irreversible countdown, but Benton thought that there was time to run in, make the change, and run back out again. Now, had we known at the time that his business partner was conspiring against him, well, then they could say that the business partner did it to him, but there's issues with that. If you've got an accelerator that's going to produce dangerous levels of energy and radiation, you can't open the door and get into the target room without shutting the system down. Every detector I've ever seen has these fail-safes, including the ones at the Tri-University Mason facility, aka Triumph, which is where a lot of the scientific labs in the X-Files were actually filmed. They rented the space quite readily because particle accelerators are expensive to run. And if you've got people who want to come in and just have some scientific-looking lab, well, you put them in a lab that's not being used for those days and let them shoot. On top of that, there are very safe and controlled levels of radiation that could be done. So you can get the accelerator running without even having an enclosed target room. They often do. And in fact, Triumph is one of the facilities that uses controlled proton beams as a very effective treatment for eye cancer, which is essentially providing the world's most precise chemotherapy. They take this beam of protons and aim it directly at the tumor, which is why it's eye cancer, so they can get direct access to that tumor, attack that without touching the healthy tissue around it. It's worked extremely well for a lot of people. Now, those may not be totally obvious. Scientific nitpicks, you do have to know a bit about particles and particle accelerators. But one thing that a lot of audience members do have a lot of familiarity with is the way shadows behave. And here it's inconsistent. For most of the episode, it behaves in terms of where you could find the shadow, how it moves, exactly like real shadows do. Now, the original concept for the episode was to have the shadow move independently of Dr. Banton. That was changed in a rewrite to keep the show under budget, but there'll be a little bit more on that later when we talk about who wrote it and directed it and whatnot. Now here, if the shadow did follow the regular rules of light and optics, most of the episode works exactly the same way. The difference is the opening teaser. The shadow would not have been able to slip under a hotel door. The shadow would have fallen on the exterior of the door and not slide under it which is annoying to me because there's also a pretty simple fix. Instead of having the hotel guest just trying to read quietly and coming to check out what's going on, have a hotel guest who's trying to sleep, you show a digital clock that shows it's very early, come to the door, open the door to give Dr. Benton a piece of their mind for making that racket, and the shadow falls them at that point. There's also the question of how the shadow even knows that the victim is a person. It doesn't destroy the things that it's falling on, so it doesn't destroy the floor, and whatnot. But you could say that, well, the shadow has two sides and only one side is dangerous. But in that case, why isn't it affecting the air that falls on it too? It seems to be pretty indiscriminate. I mean, it can't just be attacking living things because it doesn't attack the skin that's in contact with it. It attacks shoes, socks, pants, shirts, and the person that's wearing all the clothes. It also affects things that aren't directly over the shadow. When a couple people are killed by it, when the government tries to capture him the first time when he's in the psychiatric facility, 
and the emergency light comes on, it's pretty clear from the shot that each of the people assaulting him had maybe one foot on the shadow, and yet it killed all of them and left the scorch marks to the side. So again, it somehow conducts through matter, but can tell what is people in clothing and what is not. So the, the science in this one I find a bit of a turnoff. The general concept is sound. This is one of the few times when we have the monster or the villain who doesn't want to be a danger or a monster or a villain. He recognizes that he is and spends the most part trying to protect people, even the police trying to bring him in. It's not until the government agents come to get him that he actually starts using it as a weapon. And he tries to kill X, who runs away. He only successfully deliberately kills Detective Ryan when she's going to bring him in instead of letting him cure himself now that he's back at Polarity Magnetics. It does give a nice change for the monster or the villain. For the most part, he's a decent human being. I just think it would have worked better had they changed the origin of the shadow. So instead of trying to go with a science fiction concept of science that's broken, I would have preferred if they'd gone something supernatural in origin. So instead of being innovative once again, and being one of the first shows to reference dark matter explicitly, I would have preferred it if they just made it some sort of witchcraft or spell or something along those lines instead. That said, it did set up a lot of dynamics, so we don't just see this unique monster or villain in Dr. Banton and his shadow, but we get to see very clearly and very unambiguously that X is representing interests that do not necessarily line up with Mulder's and Scully's, since he leads the team that captures Banton and seems to hook him up to the brain-sucking machine that he was so afraid of. It's a nice touch. Now, this was the first script written by Vince Gilligan, or Vince Gilligan. I can never remember the way he prefers to have it pronounced and the proper way to pronounce it. He was working as a freelance writer. He'd only had one credit up to that point, but his agent was a only somewhat distant relative of Chris Carter. They managed to set up a meeting. Carter liked the guy. He liked the one script that he'd had produced in Wilder Napalm and asked if any ideas for the show. And that's what this became. Now, Gilligan was the one that put in the reference to Squeeze from season one. He had the shadow, as I said, working independently of Banton, but that idea was scrapped because the costs of doing that convincingly would have been simply astronomical. And the other major change that Chris Carter and Howard Gordon did in their uncredited rewrite when they removed the shadow's ability to work autonomously was in adding X. So the character did not appear in the original script. In the original script, Banton was paranoid about the government, but there was no concrete evidence to back that up. Here we get some of that, which really helps heighten the tension in that final act. Now, Vince Gilligan would go on to write a total of 30 scripts for the series, this just being his first, although he's probably best known today as the creator of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Now, largely, it does play out like a first script. We don't see any real risks being taken with the main cast. It pretty much sticks to the formula of what's going on, including not having Mulder and Scully in the teaser. That's just setting up the monster. They get called in on the case with things like in Squeeze, where they're called in by someone that they used to know. Now, the other major production credit that we tend to look at is the director. This was directed by James A. Contner. As James Contner, it's his first and only X-Files directing credit, although genre fans would also have seen his work in Dollhouse, Angel, Buffy, Charmed, Enterprise, Firefly, Dark Angel, Roswell, Smallville, American Gothic, Lois and Clark, The New Avengers of Superman, and a lot more. It guest stars Kevin McNulty as Dr. Christopher Davey. That's Banton's partner, who we eventually learn is working for the government agency and trying to turn him in. He previously appeared in the episode Squeeze as Agent Fuller, and will return as Agent Fuller again in Season 3. Now, Kate Twa, who plays Detective Kelly Ryan, 
Scully's former student, who brought them in on the case, makes her second and final appearance in the X-Files here. She previously appeared as the female version of Marty in Genderbender. So overall, it is an entertaining episode, provided you're not familiar enough or invested enough in the science to be bothered by it. If you can let go of the science, it works. I just have a really hard time letting go. For me, it doesn't work, even though Tony Shalhoub does his typical excellent job in the role. But that's about all I have to say for Soft Light. Please remember to join us again in two weeks for Our Town. Feel free to rate this and any other show that you listen to on iTunes or Stitcher. It really does help us all get noticed. And thank you for listening. Intro and outro music is Outside Poolside by Laswell, created under the Creative Commons license. All other content copyright 2015, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments or feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you for listening.